0: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you very much for joining us uh, this afternoon as we welcome His Excellency, the Indian High Commission of United Kingdom, uh, Vikram Daswamy, to uh, give us a 20-minute uh, uh, address uh, and then uh, take questions from both myself and you guys. So, ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming His Excellency. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. That is all mine. So do you want to uh, give your opening remarks? Uh, right. US, is please. this thing on? Yes, uh, yeah. yeah, all yeah. Right. Um, Excellent. So, ladies and gentlemen, first of all, thank you very much, Ali, for the opportunity to be here at this storied union building and to have the opportunity to have a conversation with all of you. Um, I'd like to say this is, of course, a pleasure to be able to address some of the smartest young people in in the UK. Though, of course, I'm sure there's another another university north of London that might dispute that particular point. But I do believe it is is important to make the point that uh, the topic that I'm talking to you about is of interest, I think, to the broader community here in terms of the socio-economic transformation that's underway in India, which I believe is quite unprecedented. Let me explain why I think it's unprecedented. My generation, and uh, there was a point of time when I was about your age, hard as that might be to believe. Uh, for us, the transformation of the time, the the story of the time was the um, the transformation that was underway in China, and what is underway today in India, I believe, is pretty much a significant, equally significant moment that you will see in your lifetimes, and it is indeed, in a sense, possibly even more consequential because it is happening with the greater complexity of india socially uh, socially in terms of its diversities and also it is happening in the framework of a democratic system i think those are consequential points to make change of course as they say is inevitable but we in india have long been accustomed to the idea that change as and when it took place was like uh, a trunk call in the old days before we had modern internet-based dialing systems In in other words, change would happen, but it would take God's good time for it to happen. And today, however, that is no longer the case. Change is happening, both in a context that is unprecedented, but at a speed and a scale that is also unprecedented. And I think this is consequential again. Uh, What do I mean by that? Let's put this in perspective. Um, If you were to look at any society, societies change on the basis of uh, transformation takes place on the basis of changes in, in, in social structures and social, uh, social systems. Change takes place on the basis of uh, people-centric governance. And change takes place on the basis of economic uh, markers. All three are taking place in India I, in a way that is really, truly unprecedented. And let me outline some of this to you. To do this, however, let me also begin by contextualizing the bar from which it, this change has happened. Because after all, um, to, in a sense, somewhat incorrectly place a quote from, uh, from Alice in Wonderland, uh, when Alice asks the cat for directions, uh, which is the best way from here, to which the cat says a good, a good deal depends on where you want to go, right? So you need to know where we've started from, the point at which, so to speak, Alice asks the cat. And the point at where we started, of course, in 1947, and I have these statistics, and I think it's important for me to make that point to you. At the time of our midnight moment of freedom in uh, August 1947, India had a population of 340 million people. That is six times the current population of the UK. And in it, that collection of humanity had a life expectancy of less than 30 years. uh, Chronic disease and malnutrition were the norm not the exception. Literacy was at around 16%. We had a total of 17 universities nationwide, serving 238,000 students, which given what the population was, was literally a drop in the drink. 90% of the population was below the poverty line. In other words, something like 310 million people were below the poverty line economic growth was at 1% annually, not just for that one year, but for 47 years preceding that, while population was growing at 3.5%. So in other words, people were getting immiserated in poverty progressively rather than rising out of it. And of course, there was barely any industry worth the name, there was barely any power production, there was barely any food production. We, in fact, fairly quickly needed to depend on, uh, for, on food aid uh, for, for India. What we did have, however, in 1949, two years after our freedom, was a constitution that we put together on our own. What we did have, as a result, was a democracy that was very much our own, right? So, having set out that benchmark, let me lay out what social progress looks like since then. If you were to read or to look at the press today, at least from a Western perspective, I'm sorry to say that you would not really find much that is going to tell you about these transitions that are happening. Uh, Coverage is quite often spotty, more often than not sensationalist, and regrettably, quite often a modern variant of the old Orientalist school, but with a different slant to it. As I've said before, I find it difficult to recognize the India that I live in, the India that I represent, and that my colleagues and I deal with on a daily basis, because frankly it's very different from the reality that we currently see. If you look at trends and not at episodes and events, then you will find some things that I think are significant. First and foremost, let me begin with that. Democracy. Democracy continues to flourish in India. And that's not, as I say this, it's not that it's democracy and it's the continuation of democracy is in the gift of any individual or any party or any institution or indeed any entity to give to the Indian people. Democracy flourishes in India because it is hardwired and embedded in our DNA. And that is simply because we have the greatest diversity possibly known on the planet within one set of boundaries. In terms of language, in terms of uh, religious identity, in terms of um, social structures. um, There is more diversity in India than in any other part of the world. Indeed, probably more than the rest of Asia put together. And if you look at that, it is obvious to you, it, it would be obvious to me, and it ought to be obvious to you, that democracy is the only way in which India can function. Um, Elections as another benchmark of democracy. We are perennially involved in elections. Two of our, three of our states went to polls recently. A few more will go to polls in summer. There will be polls for other states by winter. And of course, by the summer of next year, we will have national elections. Elections in the last national election in 2019 had 960 million registered voters, of whom 600 million cast their franchise right? Um, This is done on electronic voting machines, which produce accurate and timely results and verifiable results, by the way. Uh, There is a, a, a verifiable paper trail, which can actually be assessed if anybody wishes to challenge an election. We are an outlier in the use of electronic voting machines in the sense that we started using them before most major countries did. And we are a consistent user of voting machines. We are indeed among only 10% of the nations of the world that use electronic voting machines. A lot of Western democracies don't, by the way. Our election process is also the gold standard of election processes, and I'm not being boastful. This is a simple statistical fact. Less than, less than one, 0.1% of the million polling booths required repolling, and typically that was for uh, weather-related issues. Indeed, you might say, if any of you is a cricket fan, that you have more weather-related outages in the UK in, in whatever you're pleased to call summer during the cricket season than we have during our elections. Now, if this is to be considered the benchmark of democracy, I think you would be able to correctly say that India's democracy is functioning fine. You might, of course, argue that democracy is not just about elections, and I accept that. Take an independent judiciary. India has an independent judiciary one that has repeatedly exercised its, its independence and underlined it, including in the right to select judges. Judges in India are selected not by political parties, not by political leaders, as is indeed the case in many Western democracies, but by a collegium of judges themselves. In other words, therefore, the judiciary is an institution that sees itself very much as a pillar of a democracy that is vibrant and functioning. So too media you hear a lot about media independence being um, being uh, vitiated or reduced. But frankly, the people who are doing all the shouting about the media not being free are doing so from India. And indeed, the rooftops that they're shouting from are Indian rooftops. So to me, that seems a little like an odd statistic. In reality, the, the, the truth is there is a diversity of media There is, of course, an English-language media that's influential and uh, relevant and, of course, widely read. But there are also vernacular medias. And vernacular idiom, vernacular conversations are equally representative of India. And frankly, believe me, if you were to read the vernacular media, they represent also a reality of India that does not necessarily accord with this sense that Indian media is in some way being constrained. Let me talk about the transformation, therefore, that is underway in terms of India's democracy. In democratic terms, the participation rate of the youth in democracy is unprecedented. At the last election, 90 million first-time voters were recorded. India's voter base recognizes and includes every single element of India's diversity. Religious minorities, ethnic minorities, in other words, tribal, uh, tribal communities, also uh, also marginalized groups, and women. The exercise of democratic right is the most fundamental sense of power that every Indian citizen carries. India does not have compulsory registration of voters, but every person seeks to be included in the voter lists. And that in itself is a pretty remarkable achievement. Indian vote, uh, democracy is based not on any kind of restriction of franchise, but from the get-go, was an inclusive franchise that covered everybody. Um, Obviously, men and women, but of all social strata. So, I think that it is quite an important aspect of the democratic transition. Let me move to social delivery. India has uh, consequentially and significantly ramped up its capacity to develop and to deliver services to its citizens. This includes the universalization of electric power, Uh, delivery of sanitation and water, drinking water to everybody. You might not, in the developed world, recognize how important this is, but many of us, at least some of us from the Indian group that is here, will remember in India in which not only were electric power outages the norm, but you didn't even necessarily expect water to come on when you turned on a tap. To be able to do this is a huge achievement. And so we have nearly 100% electrification of the entire country. Remember, at the time of our independence, a total of 150,000 villages, sorry, 15,000 villages were electrified out of 600,000 villages at that point of time. Today, every bit of India has, uh, has uh, access to electricity. Piped drinking water now reaches 50% of our households or 81 million households. Never, 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 these never had water coming through before. 17% was the figure in 2019. That's gone up to 49% today. Sanitation. Tens of millions of uh, villages now have sanitation. Again, something that you wouldn't expect. But you know who the biggest beneficiaries of this are? It's women. Because for obvious social reasons, women found it difficult to be able to well, go to the bathroom when there wasn't a bathroom, basically. Uh, It made it difficult, therefore, for them to go to school. The the creation of sanitation facilities in villages means the liberation of women, also the the capacitation of women to be able to go to school. A huge change. And finally, modern banking system. 344 million people have been included in the banking system in the last six years. Uh, Put it this way, in 2014, when we launched these schemes for the banking system, um, the world average of banking accounts for adults was 62%. We were at 53%. Today we, were at, we are at 80 percent. 80 percent of the population of India has access to a bank account, and of course, the youth in India are at similar places uh, as as they are here. For a nation that is historically been conservative, traditional, today's India has seen an unprecedented widening of social acceptance of the many diversities of modern society. This is reflected in Bollywood, including in in socially relevant issues such as marriage, love, identity. These are no longer ossified into predetermined social frameworks. I will readily acknowledge, before anybody questions this point, that this is a work in progress. Of course it's a work in progress. We are a 5,000-year-old civilization. It takes time for, for, for the older generations to accept what the modern generation today considers normal. But this is progress that is happening faster and at scale in a way that is unprecedented in our history. Let me come to governance. What is changing in governance in India? That is digital transformations. We have leveraged the capacity of the internet and internet tools to provide governance to people at scale. In 2015, when our current Prime Minister, uh, Prime Minister Modi bet big on IT, at that point of time, only 19% of the population actually had access to the internet. Only 15% of the population had access to mobile uh, mobiles. Per capita data consumption, India w- was at 122nd spot. In the last eight and a half years, we now have 658 million internet users. The pe- internet penetration rate is 47% today, and we're adding about 34 million internet users every year. That's half the population of the UK every year. And If you were to go beyond that, um, sorry, I need to look at this because the statistics are so many, Uh, we now have 1.14 billion mobile phone users. Uh, That means 81% of the population has a mobile phone. And every year, we add 34 million mobile phone users. Um, Interestingly, while of course, uh, we we don't have the fastest bandwidth in the world, most of our urban centers actually have faster bandwidth than many Western cities. And interestingly, of course, We are probably the seventh or the eighth cheapest in the world for internet access. This means, in short, that we have the second largest number of netizens in the world, the largest number of citizens not on the internet, which means it is both a growing opportunity and a future opportunity at the same time. Two out of every three people joining the internet worldwide, every every minute. Out of that, two out of the three people are Indian. Uh, We are the largest consumer of, of data in the world. More than the US and China put together. We have 1.3 billion uh, uh, biometric identity cards issued to every citizen. 41% of the world's real time financial transactions happened in India at 48 billion. We have startups that have been turbocharged. We have the third largest number of startups benefiting from a huge youth population. And of course, we have also the third largest number of unicorns in the world. How does this work in economic terms? Quite simply, it's you will you, as you can see from statistics, from a GDP of pretty much nothing. It took us 67 years to add to come to a trillion dollars, the size of our GDP. It took us another eight years to move from one to two trillion dollars, and it's taken us five years to go from two to three. We are now the fifth largest GDP in the world, and of course, modesty forbids pointing out whom we just overtook. <laughs> Uh, we are, of course, the, f- the, the fastest growing major economy on the planet at 6.6% GDP growth. And this is something, by the way, that we have continued since before the pandemic. If, as modern crime fiction tells us, follow the money, then the world is increasingly beating a path to India. We have, in the last five years, received $532 billion of investment, which is about 70%, 65% of the total that we have received since 1947 which is which is not only impressive but it also spans um, both in terms of sourcing 162 countries and in terms of delivery 31 states and in 61 different business sectors so essentially it means that the world's business entities are looking at india as an opportunity and why are they doing that frankly for for a simple for a simple reason it isn't just because of exports exports are rising etc but we're not as yet one of the world's big export powers it is because our gdp is being driven by domestic demand right 67 percent of it comes from within and of that a huge chunk of it is coming from this transition that i was telling you about which is people from rural and peri-urban areas now have money because the internet has enabled them to internet and internet-based services have enabled them to benefit from the government's uh, provision of of benefits uh social benefits which come directly to them. And because they now have bank accounts, they are now direct beneficiaries or direct, uh, directly access benefits from government, which is creating skyrocketing rural demand. And I think that's the most interesting and fascinating story that's actually happening today. The JCB people tell me, JCB being this big British uh, construction uh, equipment company, they've opened six factories in India. And what Lord Bamford tells me is that the biggest source of demand is people coming straight literally out of rural areas and putting down wadges of cash to buy a JCB backhoe loader because they are now becoming entrepreneurs leasing out the equipment to be able to build new infrastructure in rural areas. Everything from check dams to canals to, 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 to facilities. The big driver of this, the second big driver of this is youth. The median age of India today is 29 years. And till 2070, we will be the largest young nation on the planet. So this is your cohort of young people, who are definitely not mine, um, who will be transforming India, because they are the ones who are demanding new products, new services, and a new way of looking at India. And I think that is remarkable, because they are also powering the largest rise of poverty, uh, out of poverty, uh, on the planet. 415 million people, and this is not my statistics, this is the UNDP statistics, 415 million people were lifted out of poverty in the last 16, 17 years. Uh, Multidimensional poverty is down at its lowest levels ever in our history. And for those of you who worry about inequality, as you should, um, the Gini coefficient of inequality now is 0.294%. So therefore, you can actually see how access to food 800 million people are receiving uh, subsidized food ever since the pandemic. You can see how uh, access to funding, you can see how access to the internet, all of this is enabling an explosive change in social, economic, and governance terms in India. And I think that, frankly, is the story that should be most relevant to friends in the UK. Along with the fact that if if you look at it, where it's also being matched by a nationally driven effort, and I must emphasize the point that it's nationally driven, to reduce the carbon intensity of our growth, not because other people are telling us to do so, but because we recognize that all of us, in particular poorer citizens in our country, people living in climatically climatically fragile areas will be at greater risk. We stand to lose as much, if not more than anybody else from the adverse effects of climate change. This is even though at 1.8 tons per capita, Our emissions are a fraction of larger economies. And again, I needn't mention which ones. But we have met our Paris commitments of 2014 to reach 40% power from non-fossil sources. And we did so eight years ahead of schedule. We have now, we said we would reach this by 2030. We've reached it by 2022. We intend now to go up to 50% renewables uh, by 2030. So we've upped our targets and we have pledged to cut cumulative emissions by 1 billion tons by 2030. So quite a bit of our our effort is to reduce the emission intensity of our growth. I don't need to emphasize here to all of you that if we get it right in our effort to raise hundreds of millions of our citizens, and here when I say raising people out of poverty, I mean all citizens, because the objective of all of these exercises is inclusive and non-discriminatory. The focus is on every single citizen of India. Uh, if we do it in a manner that has a modest impact on the earth and within a democratic framework, that I think is both an exemplar for other democracies to, see, to show that democracy works uh, in raising countries out of poverty into prosperity, but also it has an impact on the larger climate story. And so that brings me to my final point. What should matter to you as young, and I trust idealistic people, is that the true benchmark of change in India is more intangible than anything tangible in the statistics that I told you. And what would that be? Well, if you talk to young people in India today, including I'm sure in the cohort that is here from India, you will find that they are confident. You will find that they have um, a positive, in fact, I would say a sense of certitude that their lives are going to be better than those of their parents. That they will have um, uh, more comfortable, more productive, and more materially rewarding lives than any other of of their ancestors. And indeed, there is empirical evidence for that, that generation on generation since 1947, the quality of life of each succeeding generation of Indians has been better. But I believe this young cohort who now represent India and are well-placed to take the reins of our country uh, from, from our generations, they will actually come from an India that is very different from anything that ever existed before that confidence is visible everywhere and i encourage every one of you those of you who haven't been to india before that this is your opportunity to go and see what aspiration and what hope and what expectation really look like when it's multiplied into 1.4 billion people thank you very much